Section two of Confessions of an English Opium Eater. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. Confessions of an English Opium Eater by Thomas de Quincey. Section two. Preliminary Confessions these preliminary confessions or introductory narrative of the youthful adventures which laid the foundation of the writer's habit of opium-eating in after life it has been judged proper to premise for three several reasons one as forestalling that question and giving it a satisfactory answer which else would painfully obtrude itself in the course of the opium confessions how came any reasonable being to subject himself to such a yoke of misery voluntarily to incur a captivity so servile and knowingly to fetter himself with such a sevenfold chain a question which if not somewhere plausibly resolved could hardly fail by the indignation which it would be apt to raise as against an act of wanton folly to interfere with that degree of sympathy which is necessary in any case to an author's purposes two as furnishing a key to some parts of that tremendous scenery which afterwards peopled the dreams of the opium-eater three as creating some previous interest of a personal sort in the confessing subject apart from the matter of the confessions which cannot fail to render the confessions themselves more interesting if a man whose talk is of oxen should become an opium-eater the probability is that if he is not too dull to dream at all he will dream about oxen whereas in the case before him the reader will find that the opium-eater boasteth himself to be a philosopher and accordingly that the phantasmagoria of his dreams waking or sleeping day-dreams or night-dreams is suitable to one who in that character humani nihila se alienum putat readers translation considers nothing human to be alien to him for amongst the conditions which he deems indispensable to the sustaining of any claim to the title of philosopher is not merely the possession of a superb intellect in its analytic functions in which part of the pretensions however england can for some generations show but few claimants at least he is not aware of any known candidate for this honour who can be styled emphatically a subtle thinker with the exception of samuel taylor coleridge and in a narrower department of thought with the recent illustrious exception of david ricardo 
but also on such a constitution of the moral faculties as shall give him an inner eye and power of intuition for the vision and the mysteries of our human nature that constitution of faculties in short which amongst all the generations of men that from the beginning of time have deployed into life as it were upon this planet our english poets have possessed in the highest degree and scottish professors in the lowest i have often been asked how i first came to be a regular opium-eater and have suffered very unjustly in the opinion of my acquaintance from being reputed to have brought upon myself all the sufferings which i shall have to record by a long course of indulgence in this practice purely for the sake of creating an artificial state of pleasurable excitement this however is a misrepresentation of my case true it is that for nearly ten years i did occasionally take opium for the sake of the exquisite pleasure it gave me but so long as i took it with this view i was effectually protected from all material bad consequences by the necessity of interposing long intervals between the several acts of indulgence in order to renew the pleasurable sensations it was not for the purpose of creating pleasure but of mitigating pain in the severest degree that i first began to use opium as an article of daily diet in the twenty-eighth year of my age a most painful affection of the stomach which i had first experienced about ten years before attacked me in great strength this affection had originally been caused by extremities of hunger suffered in my boyish days during the season of hope and redundant happiness which succeeded that is from eighteen to twenty-four it had slumbered for the three following years it had revived at intervals and now under unfavourable circumstances from depression of spirits it attacked me with a violence that yielded to no remedies but opium as the youthful sufferings which first produced this derangement of the stomach were interesting in themselves and in the circumstances that attended them i shall here briefly retrace them my father died when i was about seven years old and left me to the care of four guardians i was sent to various schools great and small and was very early distinguished for my classical attainments especially for my knowledge of greek at thirteen i wrote greek with ease and at fifteen my command of that language was so great that i not only composed greek verses in lyric metres but could converse in greek fluently and without embarrassment an accomplishment which i have not since met with in any scholar of my times 
and which in my case was owing to the practice of daily reading off the newspapers into the best greek i could furnish extempore for the necessity of ransacking my memory and invention for all sorts and combinations of periphrastic expressions as equivalents for modern ideas images relations of things etc gave me a compass of diction which would never have been called out by a dull translation of moral essays etc that boy said one of my masters pointing the attention of a stranger to me that boy could harangue an athenian mob better than you and i could address an english one he who honoured me with this eulogy was a scholar and a ripe and a good one and of all my tutors was the only one whom i loved or reverenced unfortunately for me and as i afterwards learned to this worthy man's great indignation i was transferred to the care first of a blockhead who was in a perpetual panic lest i should expose his ignorance and finally to that of a respectable scholar at the head of a great school on an ancient foundation this man had been appointed to his situation by hmm, college oxford and was a sound well-built scholar but like most men whom i have known from that college coarse clumsy and inelegant a miserable contrast he presented in my eyes to the etonian brilliancy of my favourite master and beside he could not disguise from my hourly notice the poverty and meagreness of his understanding it is a bad thing for a boy to be and to know himself far beyond his tutors whether in knowledge or in power of mind this was the case so far as regarded knowledge at least not with myself only for the two boys who jointly with myself composed the first form were better grecians than the headmaster though not more elegant scholars nor at all more accustomed to sacrifice to the graces when i first entered i remember that we read sophocles and it was a constant matter of triumph to us the learned triumvirate of the first form to see our archididascalus as he loved to be called conning our lessons before we went up and laying a regular train with lexicon and grammar for blowing up and blasting as it were any difficulties he found in the choruses whilst we never condescended to open our books until the moment of going up and were generally employed in writing epigrams upon his wig or some such important matter my two class-fellows were poor and dependent for their future prospects at the university on the recommendation of the headmaster but i who had a small patrimonial property the income of which was sufficient to support me at college wished to be sent thither immediately 
I made earnest representations on the subject to my guardians, but all to no purpose. One, who was more reasonable and had more knowledge of the world than the rest, lived at a distance. Two of the other three resigned all their authority into the hands of the fourth, and this fourth, with whom I had to negotiate, was a worthy man in his way, but haughty, obstinate, and intolerant of all opposition to his will. After a certain number of letters and personal interviews, I found that I had nothing to hope for, not even a compromise of the matter from my guardian. Unconditional submission was what he demanded, and I prepared myself, therefore, for other measures. Summer was now coming on with hasty steps and my seventeenth birthday was fast approaching, after which day I had sworn within myself that I would no longer be numbered amongst schoolboys. Money being what I chiefly wanted, I wrote to a woman of high rank, who, though young herself, had known me from a child, and had latterly treated me with great distinction requesting that she would lend me five guineas. For upwards of a week no answer came, and I was beginning to despond, when at length a servant put into my hands a double letter with a coronet on the seal. The letter was kind and obliging. The fair writer was on the sea-coast, and in that way the delay had arisen she enclosed double of what i had asked and good-naturedly hinted that if i should never repay her it would not absolutely ruin her now then i was prepared for my scheme ten guineas added to about two which i had remaining from my pocket-money seemed to me sufficient for an indefinite length of time and at that happy age, if no definite boundary can be assigned to one's power, the spirit of hope and pleasure makes it virtually infinite. It is a just remark of Dr. Johnson's, and what cannot often be said of his remarks, it is a very feeling one, that we never do anything consciously for the last time of things, that is, which we have long been in the habit of doing, without sadness of heart. This truth I felt deeply when I came to leave, hmm, a place which I did not love, and where I had not been happy. On the evening before I left hmm, for ever, I grieved when the ancient and lofty schoolroom resounded with the evening service performed for the last time in my hearing, and at night, when the muster-roll of names was called over, and mine, as usual, was called first, I stepped forward, and passing the headmaster who was standing by, I bowed to him, and looked earnestly in his face, thinking to myself, he is old and infirm, and in this world I shall not see him again. I was right. 
I never did see him again, nor ever shall. He looked at me complacently, smiled good-naturedly, returned my salutation, or rather my valediction, and we parted, though he knew it not, for ever. I could not reverence him intellectually, but he had been uniformly kind to me, and had allowed me many indulgences and I grieved at the thought of the mortification I should inflict upon him. The morning came which was to launch me into the world, and from which my whole succeeding life has in many important points taken its colouring. I lodged in the headmaster's house, and had been allowed from my first entrance the indulgence of a private room which I used both as a sleeping-room and as a study. At half after three I rose, and gazed with deep emotion at the ancient towers of, hmm, dressed in earliest light, and beginning to crimson with the radiant lustre of a cloudless July morning. I was firm and immovable in my purpose but yet agitated by anticipation of uncertain danger and troubles, and if I could have foreseen the hurricane and perfect hailstorm of affliction which soon fell upon me, well might I have been agitated. To this agitation the deep peace of the morning presented an affecting contrast, and in some degree a medicine the silence was more profound than that of midnight, and to me the silence of a summer morning is more touching than all other silence, because the light being broad and strong as that of noonday at other seasons of the year, it seems to differ from perfect day chiefly because man is not yet abroad and thus the peace of nature and of the innocent creatures of God seems to be secure and deep only so long as the presence of man and his restless and unquiet spirit are not there to trouble its sanctity. I dressed myself, took my hat and gloves, and lingered a little in the room. For the last year and a half this room had been my pensive citadel. Here I had read and studied through all the hours of night, and though true it was that for the latter part of this time I, who was framed for love and gentle affections, had lost my gaiety and happiness during the strife and fever of contention with my guardian, yet on the other hand as a boy so passionately fond of books and dedicated to intellectual pursuits i could not fail to have enjoyed many happy hours in the midst of general dejection i wept as i looked round on the chair hearth writing-table and other familiar objects knowing too certainly that I looked upon them for the last time. Whilst I write this, it is eighteen years ago, and yet at this moment I see distinctly, as if it were yesterday, 
the lineaments and expression of the object on which i fixed my parting gaze it was a picture of the lovely which hung over the mantelpiece the eyes and mouth of which were so beautiful and the whole countenance so radiant with benignity and divine tranquillity that i had a thousand times laid down my pen or my book to gather consolation from it as a devotee from his patron saint whilst i was yet gazing upon it the deep tones of hmm, clock proclaimed that it was four o'clock i went up to the picture kissed it and then gently walked out and closed the door for ever end of section two recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey